Are you struggling to lower your bad LDL cholesterol, even though you may be taking a statin, swapping steaks for salads, and exercising while listening to this podcast? Ask your doctor if Repatha Evolocumab is right for you. With Repatha, you can dramatically reduce bad cholesterol and the risk of another heart attack while enjoying life too, because you're human. And with convenient self-administration, you can take Repatha in the comfort of your own home. Do not take Repatha if you're allergic to it. Repatha can cause serious allergic reactions. Signs include trouble breathing or swallowing, or swelling of the face. Most common side effects include runny nose, sore throat, common cold symptoms, flu or flu-like symptoms, back pain, high blood sugar and redness, pain, or bruising at the injection site. Visit Repatha.com or call 1-844-REPATHA. Talk to your doctor today about Repatha. 20,000. That is approximately the number of drugs the FDA has approved in its entire history. But as soon as tonight, one of those drugs could be on the chopping block, courtesy of a Texas court where a Trump-appointed U.S. district judge named Matthew Kazmarek could rule on a case that seeks to upend access to a key component of medication abortion nationwide. That component is a drug called mifepristone. The FDA approved it for use in September of 2000, and since then it has been used safely by about 5 million people in the United States alone, typically in tandem with another drug called misoprostol. Mifepristone works by blocking the production of a hormone that's needed for pregnancy. Misoprostol then begins a miscarriage, and the two drugs, when used together, are about 99.6% effective at terminating a pregnancy or completing a miscarriage. And they are safe. If you don't want to take the word of the 5 million people in America who have taken that pill, you can look at decades of research that show the risk of complications from mifepristone is less than 0.4%. That basically means that it is safer than Tylenol and Viagra. It is so safe, in fact, that as of 2022, more than 54% of abortions in the United States happen with these pills, not surgery. And that percentage is likely to increase in a post-Dobbs America. Despite all of that, a group the Southern Poverty Law Center considers a hate group. It's called the Alliance Defending Freedom. That group filed a lawsuit against the FDA in November. The group filed on behalf of four anti-abortion medical organizations and four anti-abortion physicians. The plaintiffs claim the FDA lacked the authority to approve the drug and did not adequately study its safety and efficacy. The plaintiffs want Judge Kazmarek to issue a preliminary injunction effectively blocking all access to mifepristone and revoking the FDA's approval. Now, that could happen as soon as tonight or in the coming days. After Dobbs, most abortions are already outright banned in 13 states. And with certain court cases and state Supreme Court races hanging in the balance, that number of states could trend up. So access to medication abortions using pills sent in the mail, that's been the lifeline for many people who live in some of those states with abortion bans. They've been sort of a back pocket remedy, something that could be done covertly if necessary. In states that have technically banned medication abortions as well, secretly taking these pills comes with the risk of criminalization, but it is a risk that some people are willing to take. And now, access to that option could be in jeopardy as soon as tonight. And if you think you are safe because you live in a liberal blue state, you may be in for a rude awakening. This impending ruling could mean that even if you are in a blue state, 
with newly codified abortion protections, a state like California or Michigan or Vermont, this affects you, too. Your access to the abortion pill that the FDA approved 23 years ago, your access will also be called into question if this judge rules that Mifepristone should be taken off the market nationally. Just a few hours ago, the lead plaintiff in the case filed a response brief to the FDA and the Mifepristone manufacturer. This response is expected to be the last filing before the judge could rule again on that preliminary injunction. Our team of producers is watching this case very closely this evening so we can bring you the latest if and when we have that ruling. Now, if the judge decides to block access to Mifepristone, the Biden administration is expected to file an appeal almost immediately. During a meeting with reproductive rights leaders and providers and lawyers today, Vice President Kamala Harris indicated that the White House was prepared for a legal battle. And no matter how you add all of this up, it is dismal political calculus for Republican leaders. It is literally the kind of math that could compound the political losses that Republicans suffered in this past November election. This is an indicator right here. Earlier this month, attorneys general from 23 states filed briefs in support of revoking the FDA's approval of mifepristone. The signatories to that include attorneys general from states like Texas, Georgia, Arkansas, Idaho, South Dakota, and a lot of other states that already ban or severely restrict abortion access. Here's the thing, though. According to new polling from Public Religion Research Institute, most people who actually live in those states do not agree with the position their attorneys general have taken in this case. Look at this map. In almost all of the states where attorneys general filed briefs in support of nixing access to the pill, more than 50 percent of residents in those same states say abortion should be legal. So the position these Republican attorneys general have taken is is the exact opposite of what their constituents actually want. In other words, anti-choice politicians just do not have the support to pick this fight, even if the movement itself wins in the courts. So why do it? And what can ordinary citizens and the White House and the Justice Department and even the FDA do once this ruling is out? I have just the folks to ask. Joining us now is Melissa Murray, law professor at New York University and co-host of the Strict Scrutiny podcast. Also with us is Elisa Wells, co-founder and co-director of the nonprofit group Plan C. Um, Melissa, let me just start with you in terms of what you think the Biden administration can and should do. Is now the time to declare a state of emergency on abortion? Is now the time for them to order the FDA to operate independent of whatever this judge decides? What are the recourses for the administration? It's a great question, Alex, because the administration really needs to proceed carefully. Whatever happens here, this matter will ultimately land in the Supreme Court. And it's a question that not only deals with reproductive rights, it also deals with the question of agency authority. And this has been something that's also been a sort of bugaboo for the conservative legal movement. They want to dismantle the administrative state. So this gives them an opportunity to not only hobble abortion access, but also begin the process of undermining the administrative state. So if the president were to declare an emergency in reproductive rights, that could have consequences if it went to the Supreme Court for the president's ability in future matters 
whether related to abortion or not, for declaring emergencies. And we already saw last year what this court did with the president's emergency measures to deal with the COVID-19 pandemic. So again, it's something that the administration needs to take seriously and sort of play a lot of three-dimensional chess here. It may make more sense for the administration to let these two court cases play out and do nothing and say, we have two conflicting cases that say two conflicting things, and the FDA just has to sit back and not do anything in those circumstances. Um, Elisa, when we talk about the reality for people who are in need of abortions tomorrow, the next day, whenever this ruling is handed down, what are the options and what does your group suggest people do? I mean, is now the time to start stocking up on Mifepristone? I mean, what are the options for people who are terrified hearing this news? That's a great question, Alex. And I want to point out that already right now in the United States, there's a a whole bunch of people that don't have access to abortion right now. So for these folks and for people, if this judge judge's ruling happens, we know that there are alternate sources of supply of pills in the U.S. And our website, plancpills.org, lists these sources of supply in a state-by-state directory. We know that Aid Access is a supplier. It's a physician-mediated site that will ship pills to the United States, to all states. And we know that there are online websites, other sites that sell, and feminist networks that are distributing pills in the United States. So there are other options. They're not perfect, but we want people to know about them. Can I just ask you, you know, from a clinical perspective, if mifepristone is unavailable, there's misoprostol, which can be used as part of a one-drug protocol to terminate pregnancies. Can you talk to me about the risks and like whatever the complicating factors may be? I mean, there's a reason that I think the majority of abortions in the United States, at least, it's a two drug protocol with both drugs being active. What are the what are the implications if it's just a single drug that uh, people are forced to use if they need to terminate a pregnancy? Yeah, certainly the preferred protocol is the mifepristone plus the misoprostol. That is thought to be a little bit more effective and also to have fewer side effects. So it was a, it's a better uh, experience for the person having the abortion. But we know that misoprostol also is very effective. And with the proper instruction and access to the medication, people can safely and effectively use misoprostol for abortion. So it exists as a a sort of secondary option if you need to have a medical abortion rather than a surgical abortion. But again, there is a reason that for a very long time we have used two drugs and not one in all of this. And part of that is due to pain, duress and other side effects that accompany a single drug protocol. Melissa, you mentioned two uh, lawsuits here, and I think you were referring to the action on the part of some state AGs to push back against this. Um, case that's pending in Texas and effectively say the Supreme Court ruled that the decision on abortion should be returned to the states and outlawing mifeprostol effectively, mifepristone, sorry, effectively undermines that by taking the decision away from citizens and, and the state governments to decide on abortion. Is that right? I mean, is is that what we're talking about here? They're, they're hoping for a split court decision to then sort of complicate the landscape, at least as it concerns Judge Judge Kaczmarek. Is that right? 
So there are these 12 blue states that have filed this lawsuit also against the FDA, and they're seeking to remove the risk evaluation and mitigation strategies, the REMS that apply to mifepristone. REMS apply to only a handful of drugs, mifepristone being one of them. And the idea here is that it will make mifepristone more accessible to individuals if those mitigation protocols are removed. But they've also asked for various legal remedies that would basically blunt anything that Judge Kaczmarek might do in the Texas lawsuit. So they've also asked for the court to declare the FDA's approval of mifepristone to be lawful and uh, confirmed. And they've also asked the FDA to enjoin any measures to limit the supply of mifepristone to those who might need it. So they've added these additional elements in their lawsuits that, in addition to making this more accessible, would also blunt the force of this and perhaps create a kind of split across the country that would then force the FDA perhaps to stay its hand until the Supreme Court weighs in here. And so the real strategy is delay at this point, um, to keep access flowing for as long as possible to as many people as possible while this fight continues to churn. Can I ask you, Melissa, like I read one sort of legal analysis of all this. It suggested that the FDA, FDA doesn't have to do the FDA can sort of operate the way a traffic cop operates, which is if someone is doing 60 miles per hour in a 55 mile per hour speed zone, the police don't always enforce that. If the FDA believes in its vetting of this medication, it doesn't necessarily need to enforce the ban. Do you think that is legally sound? Well, I mean, again, it really depends. There's a lot of questions here about just sort of the scope of agency authority that have been raised in the Texas suit. Um, there are questions in the Texas suit about whether or not the FDA 23 years ago properly approved and did all of the necessary vetting to approve mifepristone. The suit that was filed today by those 12 blue states make clear that the FDA's authority is quite broad. And again, there's going to be a real conflict here. This is sort of the Venn diagram where the conservative legal movement's antipathy for abortion meets its antipathy for the administrative state. And that just means it's going to be this huge conflagration, like these two issues that they've been dying to deal with coming together in one really fraught political landscape. Um, Elisa, you know, we're talking about one of the two drugs that's used in medication abortions. How likely is it that the anti-abortion um, rights community comes after the other drug in short order if they are successful on the battle to ban mifepristone? How likely do you think it is that they come after misoprostol, the other drug? Well, misoprostol is a very widely used medication for a number of indications, and it's been on the market for a long time. So I think it would be very hard to take it off the market at this point. And also, as I mentioned, there is this robust alternate supply network with both mifepristone and misoprostol coming into this country. And we think that that's pretty much unstoppable. It will be coming into the country through the mail, through other sources, and be widely distributed. We know already that there are networks distributing tens of thousands of pills just since the Dobbs decision. Do you, I mean, are you at all worried about the, those distribution networks? Because there has been some talk on the right about trying to regulate and crack down on abortion medication that's passed through the mail. 
We think it's inevitable that this is going to succeed as a route of access. What we do worry about is that people will be criminalized for self-managing their abortions, even though most states don't have laws against self-managed abortion. We know that since 2000, in a 20-year period, 61 people were, have been criminalized for either self-managing their own abortions or helping somebody self-manage an abortion. So we worry that that will impact people who are self-managing their abortions. And we know that the risk in our criminal justice system of criminalization falls heaviest on people of color, youth, low-income folks, and others. So we want to get the word out that nobody should be criminalized for managing their own health care. Um, but at the same time, we do know that these alternate networks are available to people. And if people choose to use them, we want them to know the risk. Yeah. Melissa, I just it, this seems like, uh, for lack of a better metaphor, the dog that caught the car, if you talk about this more broadly in the spectrum of American politics, right? Republicans know that this is costing them support. It is an issue that Americans nationally care about. It is an issue that uh, r people in red states very much care about, which is the, the freedom uh, to make reproductive choices. Uh, and now the, you know, the, the anti-abortion movement is fired up and is having some success in the courts. I mean, what's your estimate of what this does in terms of pressure for the federal uh, Republican Party, which is to say congressional Republicans, to move forward on a federal ban? Well, I think we will see if the Republicans gain control of Congress in the next election, there will surely be a federal ban. The question will be whether there is a president in place who is willing to enact it and sign it. Um, but again, you're exactly right. Um, this is an episode of minority rule. There is majoritarian support in every state in the union, even red states, for abortion rights. Um, they may differ as to the substance and scope of those rights, but they believe that the Constitution should recognize a right to abortion. And many have argued that by putting this to state legislatures that have already been gerrymandered beyond recognition, we have essentially cultivated the conditions where the Supreme Court, having given this back to the people for democratic deliberation, have actually made it impossible through their decisions fostering gerrymandering to make those decisions actually democratic and majoritarian. So abortion is not only a moral issue and a political issue, it's now a gerrymandered issue. Indeed it is. Melissa Murray and Elisa Wells, thank you both for joining us on this very important topic on, on a very important evening. Thank you. That is not the only big story we are covering tonight. There is also the Republican congressman who isn't just criticizing Democratic Congresswoman Judy Chu, but actually questioning her loyalty to the United States. We are going to get her reaction live later on. We'll also have the brewing battle over former Vice President Mike Pence's subpoena to testify to the special counsel who is investigating January 6th. Pence is calling the subpoena unconstitutional, but one of his own former legal advisors is telling him he is dead wrong. That is next. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. 
If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Today, NBC News reports that special counsel Jack Smith is in court trying to force former Vice President Mike Pence to testify in response to a subpoena as part of the DOJ's sprawling January 6th investigation. NBC News' Ali Vitale sat down with the former vice president earlier this evening and got his reaction to that news. The idea of, uh, of subpoenaing a former vice president to testify in court against the president with whom they served, I believe is unprecedented in American history. But as I said last week, I believe it's also unconstitutional. Of course, the former vice president has had no problem discussing his interactions with Trump on January 6th as part of a nationwide media tour to promote his new book. And now Pence's refusal is drawing criticism from a towering conservative figure whose advice Pence previously sought. Former federal judge Michael Ludig, whose counsel Pence desperately sought during Trump's pressure campaign in the days before January 6, Ludig argues today in The New York Times that not only is Pence's position just flat out wrong, but that Pence's criticism of the subpoena as a political maneuver could not be further from the truth. Ludig writes, quote, the only question now is not whether Pence will have to testify before the grand jury, but how soon. Jack Smith's subpoena was neither politically motivated nor designed to strengthen President Biden's political hand in 2024. Thus, the jarring dissonance between the subpoena and Mr. Pence's characterization of it. It is Mr. Pence who has chosen to politicize the subpoena and not the DOJ. The legal titan who advised Vice President Pence in the most perilous moment of his career is now publicly questioning Pence's legal strategy which is probably as good a sign as any that his legal argument is maybe perhaps moot. Joining us now to figure all that out is Barbara McQuaid, former U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan and professor at the University of Michigan School of Law. Barb, thank you as always for being here tonight. Um, My first question is, Michael Ludig, who was an important advisor to Mike Pence, is just tearing apart his legal argument for not complying with the subpoena. First and foremost, he says, it's not a question of if, but when, and the judge, the courts will decide on this soon. Do you agree with that, that, that if this is a delay tactic, it's not going to work in Mike Pence's favor? Yeah, I, I think that's right, Alex. I mean, you know, Judge Ludig is a uh, lion in the conservative legal community. Uh, it's really fascinating for him to take such a public stand on this issue, especially, as you said, he was the one who was advising Mike Pence back on January 6th, uh, and now to make this bold statement. But I, I think it's right. I mean, uh, you know, Mike Pence is being very aggressive here in trying to hide behind a shield that's intended for legislators to protect them from har- harassment by the executive branch. Uh, you know, it's, it's quite a stretch for him to claim that. But even if it does offer any protection whatsoever, it is not uh, a complete shield from even appearing before the grand jury. He would have to assert it on a question-by-question basis, even if there are some things pertaining to his activity on January 6th while he is 
uh, acting as president of the Senate and certifying the vote. Uh, it certainly doesn't apply to everything within his knowledge about the events of January 6th. So I think Jack Smith will prevail here. And um, I think it will result in some delay. But, uh, you know, the court seemed to be moving rapidly on some of these privileged claims. And so one hopes that they can get Mike Pence before the grand jury in short order. Yeah, he suggests, I mean, and I'll read a little bit of the Ludig op-ed. The courts quickly disposed of Senator Lindsey Graham's speech or debate clause, clause, claim, clause claim, requiring Graham to testify before the grand jury impaneled in Fulton County, Georgia. And his claim, that's Lindsey Graham's claim, was far stronger than Mike Pence's. It is in the unlikely event that Mr. Pence's claim were to make it to the Supreme Court, it too could be expected to take swift action. I mean, he seems like it, he sounds like it's not even a question that the Supreme Court would rule in Jack Smith's favor. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I, I think that's right. It's, uh, it, it seems like such a stretch. Uh, you know, Mike Pence says this is unprecedented. No uh, vice president has ever been subpoenaed to testify against the president he served with. Well, that's because this situation has never occurred in the history of the United States. So, of course, it's unprecedented. Um, but there is really um, no reason to think that Mike Pence does not have an obligation like everyone else to appear before a grand jury. You know, there's an old ad adage that says a grand jury is entitled to every man's evidence, every person's evidence. Uh, and you can't use uh, privileges designed to protect one branch of government uh, to as a shield to protect yourself. You know. He has asserted executive privilege and now when, when it suits him and now asserting the yeah. speech or debate clause, which is a legislative privilege when it suits him. Uh, I, I think that even if these privileges safeguard some aspect of his communications, it's not going to safeguard all of it. He's going to need to show up. Yeah, you're talking about the speech and debate clause, which technically would pr protect some of the the. the the experiences and commentary and conversations while he was president of the Senate that day. But Ludig goes on to make the point that, you know, Mr. Smith, Jack Smith, the special counsel, wants to know about Pence's communications and interactions with the president, Trump, before, during the before and perhaps during the vote count, which are entirely fair game for a grand jury investigating possible crimes against the United States. There's plenty that happened outside of his role as president of the Senate that, that that the special counsel will be interested in, if not more interested in. And so you agree with Ludig here that that Pence, if he wants to invoke the speech and debate clause, is going to have to do that question by question. It can't act as a blanket to prevent him from testifying. Yes, that's right. And I think there may even be a waiver here. For one, he's talking with a member of the executive branch. So if he wants protection as a legislator, uh, he, he seems to have waived it by talking to Donald Trump. Uh, who is a member of the executive branch. He also may have waived it by writing all about it in his book. And so anything he wrote in the book, I think, would be fair game. And then also, Alex, there is an exception when there is a conversation about future activity uh, to advance a crime. And that's how prosecutors investigate bribery cases. If a member of Congress could always say, uh, well, you can't ask me anything about my vote because I'm protected by the speech or debate clause, you would never be able to prosecute a member of Congress for accepting bribes. And that's done all the time. So uh, I think there are a number of ways for Jack Smith to get around this. It seems that he's being appropriately aggressive in asking the court to rule in his favor and command Mike Pence to appear before that grand jury. Yeah, you know you're in trouble when your former lawyer is basically saying Jack Smith has the upper hand here and your argument is flat out wrong. Barb McQuaid, thank you for your time tonight. Always good to see you. Thank you, Alex. Still more to come on this busy Friday night, including outrage after a Republican lawmaker publicly questioned the loyalty of the first Chinese-American woman elected to the U.S. Congress. 
Congresswoman Judy Chu joins us to respond live. That's next. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Since it opened its doors in Los Angeles in 1973, East West Bank has served as a critical institution for Chinese Americans often overlooked by other banks. For 50 years, the focus of its business has been to build financial and cultural bridges between the U.S., immigrant communities, and Asia. So it's not out of the ordinary, then, that last July, President Biden appointed the man who has been East West Bank's CEO for 30 years— Dominic Ng, to chair Biden's Asia-focused Business Advisory Council. But last week, a group of House Republicans decided to take it upon themselves to write a letter to the FBI demanding that Mr. Ng be investigated for potentially violating the Espionage Act. Their allegation is that this prominent Chinese-American businessman, whose bank is all about connecting the East and the West, was secretly connected to China. Specifically, they allege that Ng served in leadership roles in two groups that were allegedly fronts for Chinese intelligence. Democratic Congresswoman Judy Chu and several other members of the Congressional Asian Pacific American Caucus responded by publishing their own statement defending Mr. Ng and the extensive vetting he went through before that appointment. Now, I want you to hear how Republican Lance Gooden of Texas. He's one of the Republican members who sent that letter to the FBI in the first place. Hear how he responded to Congresswoman Chu. This is what he said about the first Chinese-American woman elected to Congress, who is the chair of the Congressional Asian Pacific American Caucus. I think that Judy Chu needs to be called out. And I think that if she was an intelligence committee member this week, that Kevin McCarthy would be taking her off the committee. Do you think Congresswoman Chu should be looked into? I think everyone that's standing up for Chinese Communist parties should be looked into. Yes, I question her either loyalty or competence. If she doesn't realize what's going on, then she's totally out of, out of touch uh, with one of her core constituencies. I think she has drug along the other Chinese American members to sign this letter. Mm. Uh, but I do think she's the ringleader. And I'm, I'm really disappointed and shocked that someone like Judy Chu would have a security clearance and be entitled to confidential intelligence briefings until this is figured out. Joining us now is California Congresswoman Judy Chu, the first Chinese-American woman ever elected to Congress and, of course, the chair of the Congressional Asian Pacific American Caucus. 
Congresswoman Chu, thank you for being with me tonight. I'm sorry that it has to be under these circumstances, but I'd first just like to get your reaction to um, the congresswoman who had a lot to say about you calling you a ringleader, questioning your loyalty and competence, suggesting your security clearance should be revoked. Um, your thoughts? Congressmember Gooden's comments questioning my loyalty to the U.S. is absolutely outrageous and disgusting. It's based on false information spread by an extreme right-wing website. But furthermore, it's racist. I very much doubt that he'd be spreading these lies were I not of Chinese-American descent. In my opinion, it's McCarthyism at its worst. And it's downright dangerous. Making ugly and false accusations like this puts a target on my back for something that is not true. And in fact, it just perpetuates the stereotype that Asian Americans are foreigners in their own land, no matter how many generations they've been in this country or are like me and were born and raised in this country. But we have to look at where this is coming from. Congressmember Gooden appears to sympathize with violent insurrectionists and spreads big lies to the American people, having voted not to certify the election of President Biden and, in fact, is one of those extreme MAGA Republicans in the House that are focused on baseless conspiracy theories. Yeah, the xenophobia and the nativism and uh, the race baiting is not even subtle in the commentary, calling you a ringleader, suggesting you're dragging along other Chinese American members and you're not loyal or either loyal or competent, uh, questioning your ability to serve in Congress. Uh, <laughs> there's a lot to say about this, but for those who have not did not hear your initial pushback on the contention that uh, the businessman in question, uh, Mr. Ng, is an agent of Chinese intelligence, can you explain why you're confident that he is should serve in the position that President Biden appointed him to? Dominic Ng is an icon in the AAPI community. Uh, he brought this bank uh, from a time when it was very small and when there was such a necessity to be able to have um, uh, loans uh, for the local Asian American community to a nationwide bank. And he's highly respected by many, certainly in the AAPI community, but also in the entire community. Of course, he was vetted um, extensively for this APEC position. And we need him right now, actually, because we want to create closer ties with the other Asian countries um, so that uh, we can make sure that uh, uh, we have allies in Asia, as indeed our competitiveness with China becomes more tense. So um, he, he is somebody that uh, definitely should serve in this position. Uh, and it is just uh, horrendous that they would try to ruin his reputation with baseless lies. Yeah. And and I think it, it's important to hear what you're saying, because the the rights vilification of this individual, the rights targeting of you as a defender of this individual has been unabashed and unfounded. And it's coming at a moment where Asian-Americans increasingly find themselves targets of hate nationwide. I mean, if you look at the number in the state of California, which, which you represent in Congress, Look at the numbers of 
reports of anti-Asian hate crimes from 2012 to 2021. I mean, the number, that's 247 incidents in 2021. I mean, what, what, what do we need to be doing differently as a society? And, and what do we need to tell the purveyors of this hate, some of whom sit in the U.S. Congress? Well, we have to tell them to stop these baseless conspiracy theories and they have to stop perpetuating the uh, foreigner in their own land stereotype. Uh, and they have to stop um, having stereotypes such as when Trump called the pandemic, the China virus and even Kung flu, because by making it seem like China was responsible for the world's shutdown, he put a target on the backs of all Asian Americans in this country. Um, and uh, in fact, uh, there were those because of that uh, who wanted to kill uh, APIs because of their anger about COVID. And so um, this accusation of Chinese Americans being disloyal to this country uh, only exacerbates the ugly feelings that there are about APIs. Uh, after all this anti-Asian hate, which did result in 11,500 anti-Asian hate crimes over these last three years. Um, and so we must stop that. And I, I hope that uh, every decent American will call out these Republican con conspiracy mega Republicans um, out on this and uh, tell them that they have to stop this for the sake of this country. Well, we know that you are playing your part in calling them out, and I think uh, a nation is grateful for that. California Congresswoman Judy Chu, thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you so much. We have yet more to come tonight on this anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. As blue and yellow tributes to Ukraine appear around the world, the U.S. pledges even more help, and we will hear the case for why this is a fight the West cannot let Russia win. And later, colleges in Ron DeSantis' Florida brace for even more draconian changes. We will tell you about the latest attack in his so-called war on woke. Stick around for that one. Scenes like this one played out across the state of Florida yesterday. Public university students protesting Governor DeSantis's policies targeting LGBTQ and students of color. And for good reason. DeSantis and his partners in the so-called War on Woke were at that very moment waging a new battle inside the Florida legislature. Republican Representative Alex Andrade introduced House Bill 999 this week. It's a 23-page proposal that mirrors many of DeSantis's censorial Orwellian ideas about how to limit diversity, equity and inclusion in Florida's public colleges and universities. The bill, if it's approved, would ban degrees in subjects related to critical race theory and gender studies. It would also empower boards of trustees in each school to hire professors. You may recall that there, these are boards where the majority of the members are picked by Governor DeSantis. Some experts are already calling this legislation the most restrictive bill on higher education in the history of this country, while others say it is the end of academic independence as we know it. That's the show for this evening. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. 
The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.